0: Good afternoon, ladies. So I had an entire podcast planned for today, but there is something just gnawing at me under my skin with everything that's happening with the potentially overturning of the Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade, that I actually wanted to sit down and talk about. Now, I actually try to really stay very apolitical, and actually I'm not going to be talking about that specific thing. What I do want to be talking about is some extensions of how and why it is certainly problematic when the government does try to control and regulate a female body. How problematic it is that it limits that woman's freedom and potential. I came up with a lot of ideas that actually are Downstream effects of these that are related more to midlife and menopause. But the entire conversation surrounding what's happened with reproductive rights makes me always think about the end of the reproductive cycle. I thought it would be really timely and really important and really spot on to talk about this today. So, my episode that was supposed to go up today is just going to take a little bit of a break and it will come up next week. So, today that's what we're going to be talking about, and I hope you stick around. welcome to health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues. Many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things, women's health. Enjoy. It's no secret we talk a lot about genitourinary syndrome of menopause here on the show. So I'm excited to tell you about a non-hormonal product I recently discovered, which is the ONCE Daily Oral Omega-7 Soft Gels from Femininity. These have been shown in clinical studies to help decrease vaginal dryness. Omega-7 is a key component to epithelial tissue, which makes up a significant portion of the sensitive vaginal and vulvar tissue. Not only could you see improvements there, but additional benefits include healthier hair, skin, and nails, relief from dry eyes, plus a healthier digestive tract. I've been using it and I can definitely see and feel the benefits. It's also free of gluten, yeast, sodium, GMOs, wheat, dairy, and other preservatives. To learn more and order your soft gels, you're going to want to head to restorefemininity.com. That's R-E-S-T-O-R-E-F-E-M-I-N-I-N-I-T-Y.com. You can also find the link in the description and show notes, and also on Amazon. Thank you for sponsoring today's show, Femininity. All right, guys, you are basically getting a live show today because as of this recording, it is Wednesday, May 4th, 2022, and I wanted to sit down and record a real-time podcast about the events of the leaked document about the Roe v. Wade. Now, I'm not going to say I'm a legal expert. Clearly, I'm not, and I also don't want to turn this into a political um, right versus wrong discussion. Um, but I do want to kind of give you some background that I've spent a couple of hours this morning learning about, and then really extend that into how this affects women, you know, beyond pregnancy and into midlife and menopause and postmenopause. Because there's a couple other examples that I have, you know, thought of and come up with as I'm just thinking about. All of these events. So that's really what I want to dig into today. This is a pretty serious topic, of course, and I wanted to be able to use my voice and platform in a way to help you understand what is going on. Now, many of you are much smarter than me, and you may even want to correct me through your earphones or while you're walking. So feel free to do so. If you want to find me on Instagram, I'm at Heather HirschMD. Same at TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. So I was really taking stock in what's been going on as I was starting to get flooded with emails yesterday, which was Tuesday, uh, May 3rd, while I was in clinic seeing patients all day long. And apparently the document leaked late Monday night about the, uh, and I'm going to get these legal terms completely wrong, but essentially the Supreme Court's um, sort of like, what we think we want to say as of today. Um, And I got a lot of my sources, of course, from The Daily, which I listen to almost every morning on the way to work. And so that's where a lot of this comes from, as, uh, as well as just reading different various news sources and trying to put the pieces together. And so if the Supreme Court does rule to overtune Roe v. Wade, the first thing that's really interesting is that it's going to essentially undo, not legal terms, 50 years of precedence, which is a pretty big deal considering that at recent swearing-ins of Supreme Court justices thingies, uh, they all kind of had said that precedence is really, really important and it's unlikely that that could ever be changed. So the tides have now turned uh, very soon after they made those public statements um, and second, um, this is leaked. It could still change, but potentially seems less likely. It's odd that something like this did get leaked and there's, you know, confusing things as to why it was. Was it to get a preview? Was it to see some of societal reactions? Was it, you know, a complete, just dishonest, uh, leak Who knows? Um, And the next thing is that if this really did come to fruition, it wouldn't mean that abortion necessarily is illegal. It would actually mean that states can decide. And the downstream effect of that's pretty obvious. If you know anything, you know, red states are going to really restrict or limit abortions and blue states are most likely going to maintain access to abortions. And really, truly what that means is that women who are privileged and who have financial means can go to different states to get these services if they happen to live in a red state, whereas women underprivileged or low socioeconomic status are probably not going to be able to get that same amount of care. Okay, those are just the basics of what this could mean. And the official sort of Supreme Court ruling decision will come out in the summer, I believe, June. So that alone is pretty big. Like that feels really heavy. And listening to that and gathering all the data about this is why I decided to hold off the podcast I originally had planned for today to sit down and talk to you about what I think or what the important takeaways are uh, from what's going on. And you are absolutely welcome to still have your own stance. You know, I never talk politics with my patients um, because I really don't want that to interfere with my medical care of you. It's really important that it doesn't, but it probably doesn't come as too much of a surprise to you uh, that I do think women should have control over their bodies. And that I do think that it is a basic right, whether that means abortion is right or wrong. It really stands for the fact, uh, what comes before that is the fact that I think women should have control of their own bodies. And without that, they are just never going to be equal as men because men do not have those same types of repercussions. There is almost very few, and I'm sitting in my attic talking to myself, so I wish I had a debater with me and <laughs> we could do that later. But there's almost very few reasons that I can think of off the top of my head where men's bodies are controlled um, by the government. Uh, certainly there may be um, you know, military requirements where there could be physical things that mean that you can't go to the military that's like the one thing I can think of of course also women have those same requirements as well but those are still very drastically different than um, you know access to medications um, which is severely not tipped in the favor of women uh, access to procedures in this case um, and access to equal care Um, and so that's why it's a really really big thing So that's kind of what I wanted to at least just say and at least just break down. And I'm really kudos to my institution. If you don't know um, me or, you know, I work at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and I'm faculty at Harvard Medical School and they, you know, set up a town hall and immediately created um, meetings and Zooms so that physicians could call in and ask questions and basically talk basically have zoom fireside chats. And I think really kudos to that. Um, I'm hoping to have a colleague of mine on my show, Dr. Eve Rittenberg, she wrote an amazing piece and it was printed in the globe, like almost, you know, overnight. Um, and it's just really exciting to see people mobilize uh, really again about women having power over their bodies. And so I want to take this and use that as opposed to really getting into abortion rights. You know, again, you probably might have a guess as to what I think, uh, but I really do want to broadly more talk about this as women having control over their own bodies, which, you know, really for numerous reasons, it's not equal to the way men and the government give men control over their own bodies. So, In getting prepped for this, um, you know, impromptu podcast, I I wrote down a couple of things and reasons of why this really struck home with me, not just about access to reproductive care in terms of pregnancy, but the rest of women's health care. And I came up with a couple really interesting points that I kind of just want to dig in here to, again, just further emphasize that it's not just about, you know, terminating a pregnancy or not, or, you know, um, giving the baby up for adoption or et cetera. It's more than that. It's that this extends into so many different realms. And when women don't have access and control over their bodies, that makes them unequal to men, period. So, Example number one that I thought of is that what's interesting and was really commonly forgotten is that the most common time of an unintended pregnancy for a woman outside of early adolescence is midlife, is perimenopause. Just take that in for a second because that is really powerful to know. You know, a lot of women, um, for many reasons, just kind of either don't assume they can get pregnant that late, uh, or it's kind of fallen off their radar. Maybe they have not been able to have children and just kind of forgotten about it. Maybe um, they've had their children and (laughs) again, just kind of forgotten about it. I mean, really we have conferences, American College of Physicians, North American Menopause Society about contraception and perimenopause. Like we have to constantly teach physicians, don't forget your women in midlife can get pregnant. So if, you know, we have to train physicians to remember that we still have to tell our patients to remember that and vice versa sometimes they're reminding the doctor you know can I still get pregnant and like, oh yeah <laughs> so we need to remember that the most common time of an unintended pregnancy is midlife and again, this is really, really important. It, it's, it's obviously a little bit almost an unuseful a, a time to talk about how an undetected pregnancy can affect the outcome of your life. But the fact that I don't even need to say it because it's so clearly obvious is there. Um, and this can really throw off a woman in, in midlife and in perimenopause. And it could be for good or it could be for bad, it doesn't matter. But again, it does it it, it is more of a point of that, um we think about, you know, a lot of times when we think about access to reproductive care, we think about, you know, we have a picture in our mind of a young single mother. Um, but it could be completely opposite. Um, it could be someone who's actually pretty financially stable and already has two or three children and has now is a partner in her law from whatever it may be, right? It could be completely different. And the idea that this uh, change in legal precedence could effect, will affect every single person, although unequally is really important to think about. And along that point, a little bit of an extension of this point is that medications for women are so um, inaccessible. Now, I'm starting to think about postmenopausal hormone therapy, but I'm going to even make some further extrapolations on this point. It's not uncommon that women come to see me because they are in perimenopause and they do want hormone therapy, but their doctor doesn't believe that they can take hormone therapy or their doctor may have given them hormone therapy, but not thought about what happens if they could get pregnant. For example, women on massive amounts of testosterone from testosterone pellets, if there is an unintended pregnancy and she's not using contraception, that could virilize a fetus, which means um, a, a female fetus could end up with male parts. Okay. Um, And those things are not told to the patient very commonly. Um, And so access to medications I see as women get into midlife and perimenopause and menopause are severely limited. You know, we can also extend that into um, using contraception for other things. This is another great. Another, I was going to say great, but another real problem is that uh, we call contraception contraception. I know you're going to think that sounds crazy, but I wish we called it something else. If any of you have seen me in my clinic, you may commonly know that I call birth control pills, perimenopausal pills, or acne pills, or PCOS medications. I really, 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 really wholeheartedly dislike the term birth control pills or contraception or Birth control methods. I dislike it to its core because it means that all those medications are doing is preventing you from pregnancy. And while that might be one of the reasons you're using it, it might not be every single reason. And also because of that, that then may actually turn out to negatively impact if you can actually access that medication. So, you know, we know that a couple years ago, um, certain, in, 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 I would say employers or um, insurance companies wouldn't um, pay for women's quote-unquote contraception uh, because uh, they worked for a religious, uh, let's say, institution uh, or a company. And But but, but what about the other fact of that could be used for acne or to control polycystic ovarian syndrome so they don't go on to get uterine cancer and cardiovascular disease? Oh, and just happen to prevent, you know, pregnancy because it delays ovulation. You know, so I really also find that there are so many different ways you could play that to whatever card you want. Um, that's really bothersome. And then you get to the whole hormone therapy debate. And here you have a big influence from the Women's Health Initiative, which is a government funded study. And again, I don't want to completely knock the WHI, or completely knock the nh or completely knock the FDA. I'm just pointing out places where I see on a daily basis um, women's bodies and decisions are controlled by, I guess, what all under the umbrella of the government. And again, listen, sometimes this has benefits, right? As you know, I strongly stand against unregulated, unFDA approved testosterone pellets. Why? Because it causes serious damage to women. OK, so I do think that there is uh, there is some reasons why, you know, we do need overseeing and regulation. But a lot of times this can be very problematic. Now, to the same point, it's your right. If you want to take a testosterone pellet, you can take a testosterone pellet. It's my right to also tell you why I don't think you should and actually what I think could be better and safer. But, you know, it is your right. And I'm not going to say that it's not because at this point, okay. And if that's what you want to do with your body, that's what you can do. Okay, so I got a little off topic there, but let's talk about access to hormone therapy. Access to hormone therapy is a really interesting problem. And, you know, before the WHI, most women took hormone therapy and the American College of Physicians advocated for the use of hormone therapy. But in the early 2000, 2002, 2003, when the WHI first came out, as you know, if you've been a listener of my podcast, definitely listen to the episode I did with Dr. Sharon Malone about this because she walks you through it as she was living it. But when those results came out, hormone therapy dropped precipitously and the use of antidepressants rose steeply, starkly frighteningly fast. And so women were pulled off hormone therapy and we've been unable to really undo the results of that. The damage was done just like Justin Timberlake said. And despite, you know, a plethora of evidence to the contrary in the last 20 years, it's been really hard to undo the damage that has been done to women's health because of the fear instilled by them that the powers that be that hormone therapy is dangerous. And again, let me take another step back because I can tell I'm clearly on a rant here, um, and I hopefully do have some valid points. Not everyone needs to take hormone therapy, and I'm not saying that hormone therapy is right or wrong, but the fact that I think about five to ten percent of the U.S. population is on hormone therapy when probably many, many, many more percent of women could benefit from it if they had access to it and good consulting about making choices. um, Those are things that make me think that hormone therapy access is limited, not only just because uh, they need to find someone who can prescribe it for them. And that's why a lot of, um, you know, femtech companies are trying to tackle this problem. um, But then it's also how costly they are. Now, some are generic and some are not that expensive, uh, but some are. Some people are limited by their insurance, by like, let's say, the weekly patch. Some people can only get the twice weekly patch. And if they want the other one, I have to do a whole prior offer and there's no rhyme or reason. That could be said of any medication that any physician prescribes, but by nature, estradiol and micronized progesterone are not expensive. Um, they're not even money makers necessarily for those companies, so it just seems a little strange. And then you even extend that to vaginal estrogen, which is completely safe, which is so necessary and so important, and it still carries a black box warning on it, put on there by you know the NIH because of the results of the WHI, which have nothing to do with vaginal estrogens. These are local, um, topical hormone therapy. Those are also extraordinarily costly. Um, And these are medications that keep women healthy and happy and safe. And we've done many, many podcasts on that here. So um, it's likely you're only listening this far into the show if you are an avid follower of mine. And, um, you know, there's lots of data to show that hormone therapy increases your lifespan. Actually, there's plenty of data to show at least by 3 years. And there is numerous benefits to hormone therapy for women who start within 10 years of menopause who have no known contraindications to estrogen, of which probably 90% of women fall into that category when they're thinking about hormone therapy. Okay? So this is a real, real big problem. And Dr. Phil Sorrell, a good friend and mentor of mine, did an immense amount of research on the harms done to women's bodies, um, lifespans, um, you know, a quality of life after the WHI because women refused hormone therapy for no reason. So it's extraordinary. Extraordinary. And next up, and finally, you have... Research on medications and accessibility to things like testosterone and sexual health medications. All right, so what do I mean by this? Well, you know, I'll, I have done several podcasts on testosterone replacement. You can listen to my one on estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. Oh my, that's very popular. Um, but testosterone supplementation, especially postmenopausally for women with low libido, is supported by NAMS. NAMS is the North American Menopause Society. And testosterone use in women is finicky at best because testosterone is not FDA approved um, in the United States um, for women um, that they have to go through a lot of hoops and jumps to get it. Now, the same may be true for men. Totally may be true. I don't see men. I don't keep up with it. So I don't want to speak on that. I think it's still an fda approved, but I think that access to it is much, much easier because it's commercially available. For women, FDA, uh, sorry, for women, testosterone is not commercially available. Commercially available means that, uh, you know, a uh, a man could go to CVS, Walgreens, and they probably will carry the testosterone supplementation that their doctor is prescribing for them. Yes, men can also get testosterone pellets injected and do all sorts of unapproved things, and they do that too. But women are, have it even worse. So there is no commercially available option for women. And it is unlikely in my lifetime that testosterone will ever be FDA approved for women. <laughs> Look, at the, we're at a point where, you know, if we're overturning um, precedents on abortion, it's unlikely that we're going to get testosterone approved for women. OK, now here's a little bit of Heatherism where I will get honest with you and political is that what would the world look like if most women took hormone therapy and testosterone? They'd probably be sharper, smarter, faster, stronger, better. All right. I will leave you to your own devices to think about and ponder why, um, you know, access to uh, good care in midlife and at menopause has has not been equal to men. And you already know this. You already know this. I'm just saying what you already know and validating and informing uh, your lovely dinner table discussions this week. So access to testosterone supplementation, which can be immensely helpful for libido issues, as well as you know, studying testosterone, we also don't know what we don't know. What else could testosterone be good for? There was a small study in the UK looking at cognitive improvement with testosterone use in postmenopausal women. What are the places that testosterone works in the brain, or in the muscles, or in the gut? We kind of don't know. We don't know, and we don't know what we don't know. And then there are other sexual health medications out there, but they are so expensive and costly and under-prescribed and and not taught. Doctors don't know about them, right? So then you can't access them both financially and because you need a doctor to prescribe them to you. Now I've done lots of podcasts and I think I have a great YouTube video on medications for low libido. So you can check that out if you want to dive deep on that. But the other two medications besides for testosterone that are actually FDA approved for low libido in perimenopausal women, not postmenopausal women is Adi or filbanserine, a once daily oral medication that works to increase dopamine in the brain and Vilesi. Vilesi is an as needed injectable. It's a bromelanotide receptor um, antagonist. So. Just a bunch of um, medical jargon. And so both of those work centrally in the brain to help improve desire. And they're really difficult to get. In fact, you know, as a menopause specialist and expert and as an ISHWISH fellow, that's the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, there are... Both of those medications have one specialty pharmacy that I will send my prescriptions to, and that's the one and only pharmacy that I can, for now, trust that is going to give the best prices to my patients. But these are not covered for anyone on government insurance, only if you have commercial payer insurance. So again, a theme of, you know, even though women's care is unequal to men, there are still within that um, subcategories of who does get better care. And it, and it shouldn't be that way. And it should not be that way. You know, so, uh, again, research on these topics is very, very slim to none. Now, again, I, I could be wrong because, um, I, I am not a grant writer and, um, there are many amazing people that are, and I think my skills lie in translating that research to women. And I love doing that. I really think that that is where I shine. And uh, so I leave the super smart, you know, physicians and scientists to uh, study what needs to be studied and do the research and apply the research. But it is no secret that it's unlikely um, that, you know, someone will get granted this huge amount of money uh, to study testosterone in postmenopausal women, right? Just even saying it, you're like, yeah, I just don't think so. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's, it, it is still that way. And it will be that way for a very long time. But what I will say is that my army of women has, you guys are amazing. You guys are strong and you are um, incredible in what the voices that you're putting out there and the support groups that you're forming and the discourse that you're having and the conversations that you're starting and the posts that you're reposting, the questions that you're asking your doctors, the questions that you're asking your partners. You know, being in social media has been such a amazing experience because I feel I truly do get to feel like I am living this uh, life and revolution in midlife women's health with you, which I which I am physically, mentally and emotionally getting to do. Um, and it is just really, really incredible. So I kind of want to summarize a little bit because I think that that was a lot. I didn't even know I had all of that stored in me. But again, I think that, of course, um, this is a huge, huge thing in history that will be unfolding over the next couple of weeks. And it's immensely important uh, for everyone involved and for generations to come. And it's not just about what happens to our bodies if they get pregnant. That's huge. But it's what happens to our bodies in every single stage of the reproductive uh, cycle, including postmenopausal as a part of that cycle. and there is many, many examples of where having our bodies be controlled um, means that we are l- we are considered <laughs> less than men. you know I, there's no other good way to say it. I kind of wanted to say it in a positive light, but it's hard to find any other positive words. And it's not just access um, to medications and procedures, but it's choices that we can make. um, It's the uh, information that we can receive. um, And it's doing things so safely. Because one thing's for sure without access, it's not that it will stop, it's just that it will be done in an unsafe manner. And that's really a lot of what I have seen happen in menopause, as well as what is now being shown and being talked about in reproductive health care. All right, guys, I know that was a little sobering. I'm sorry, but I thought it was important to do something real time. I have this great episode next week. I'm going to leak that it's going to be with Angie from Angie Hot and Flashy on YouTube. And you guys, I cannot wait to like drop some teasers and clips because it's going to be such starch contracts to how serious this show is this week. We talk about all things, women, empowerment, midlife, beauty, menopause. And so you know what? Actually, it is going to be a good episode to come right after this. What an incredible, incredible story and woman and how exciting it was to get to talk with Angie. And I can't wait to have her on my show next week. I love you guys so sincerely. Thank you for sharing my show, sharing your voice, sharing your opinions. Um, and I, I I really appreciate you guys so much. With that all being said, I hope you have a wonderful evening. I hope that this actually inspired you and motivated you. Um, together we are stronger. That's really cheesy, but it's really true. And I will see you guys next week for a really fun episode. Until then, thank you guys for listening. Bye everyone. we you